Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Not to just regard him, not to only miss him as much as I do and only grieve him or only celebrate him, but act upon his legacy in a way that moves you and hopefully your place in the world to a a better place. Because I truly believe that we're already better collectively because of Muhammad Ali, but that's no reason to stop. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week is a tribute show to a terrific friend of the Edge of Sports Podcast, uh, Oscar-nominated, Emmy Award-winning documentary film director, Chicago Bill Siegel, who passed away this week. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards, and we're going to play an interview that I did with Bill Siegel after the passing of Muhammad Ali. And you'll understand why in just a moment, because now I'm going to say a few words about Bill Siegel. There's an ancient cliche about death that goes back to times where people were writing with feather quills. It's that when you learn that a loved one dies, you expect the world to stop, and yet, maddening as it is, life continues on all around you. Now in our social media age, I think this feels even more pronounced, as existence just buzzes on at a breakneck pace while your own world screeches to a halt. My friend Bill Siegel died last week, and I expected the world to halt and take a moment to acknowledge this titanic loss. That didn't happen, and as irrational as it is, I found it maddening. I wanted to shout at everyone tweeting about Kirk Cousins or Nancy Pelosi that Bill Siegel had died. My particular social media world is curated around the topics of sports and politics, which made me all the more desperate for people to feel his absence. Bill Siegel was a filmmaker of the First Order, and he was the city of Chicago through and through. He directed the Oscar-nominated film Weather Underground about the 1960s radical left-wing revolutionary group. He was a researcher on what is considered the best sports documentary ever made, Hoop Dreams. He was an educator, an activist, and someone who grabbed at life with both hands. I met Bill through his direction of the Emmy Award-winning documentary The Trials of Muhammad Ali. I reviewed the film for The Nation and called it the best documentary about Muhammad Ali that I've ever seen. Its greatness was due to two aspects that made the much-tread subject of Ali bracingly fresh. The first was the fact that the film included footage that we had never seen before, of Muhammad Ali in 1968 speaking on college campuses, arguing with students, and developing his voice while banned from boxing. The second was the deep dive into why the young Cassius Clay would find an organization like the Nation of Islam so attractive. This was all executed brilliantly, and I was effusive in my praise. Bill reached out to me after reading the review and thus began our friendship. He was kind and generous, an Oscar-nominated director happy to talk shop about sports or film or our kids or just life itself. 
His childhood friend, Webb Hutchins, wrote the following about Bill on Facebook, and I thought it captured him perfectly. He wrote, My best friend since childhood, Bill Siegel, a.k.a. Chicago Bill, died of a heart attack on Saturday. In his honor, please watch his Emmy-winning documentary, The Trials of Muhammad Ali, and watch it with your kids, your students, and any young people you know. Ali's message is Bill's message, and it is a message for all, especially the youth. For as Bill wrote in The Guardian upon Ali's passing, there will never be another Muhammad Ali within the boxing ring. But beyond the boxing ring, he represents the capacity we all have to live truly moral, principled, and humane lives. I'm forever grateful to have been graced with his presence, and I know his spirit lives on here among us. Bill knew that we are all linked by history, compassion, and love. Rest in peace, Bill. Webb Hutchins is absolutely correct about Bill Siegel. This year I taught a sports history class at Montgomery College, and I showed my students the trials of Muhammad Ali. Their knowledge of the subject ranged from little to none before watching the film, and our conversations about Ali in the 1960s reflected that. They were one-sided and dogmatic as I blathered on about Sonny Liston and Malcolm X with little response. Now after the viewing, the entire dynamic of the class changed. It is a work of art that doesn't only educate and inspire, it arms people with ideas about the 1960s, the black freedom struggle, and the Vietnam War in a way that translates into actual knowledge and not the mere regurgitation of facts. Bill's gift is so absolute that I'm pained not only by the loss of a friend and comrade, but by the films we're not going to get to see. Bill's next project was going to be, quote, a new documentary that traced the history of the United States Information Agency and the creation of the U.S. government's internationally broadcast radio station Voice of America, which is regarded by some as a form of propaganda, end quote. I think Bill is going to use this topic to denounce so much of the bullshit that passes for news in 2018 and link the flooding of fake news with government propaganda that serves only the wealthy and powerful. The best possible tribute to Bill Siegel would be for us to pick up the baton and continue that work. I had ideas that I was sending to Bill about film and various projects that I thought we could work on together, and he was always friendly no matter how outlandish the idea or query that I had, but I never really followed up about some of these ideas that I sent to Bill because I always assumed that there would be time. There won't always be time. Rest in power, Chicago Bill. And now I'm going to play an interview that I did with Bill Siegel after the passing of Muhammad Ali in 2016. Let's jump right in with the director of the, the incredible documentary, The Trials of Muhammad Ali, Bill Siegel. Bill, just straight up, how are you feeling? I mean, you heard the news about Muhammad passing on. How, how did you take it? I get sadder and sadder. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's coming at me in waves that he's really gone from the mortal plane, at least, even though his influence and, you know, his spirit will be here forever. But um, having gotten the chance to meet him a couple of times in different periods in my life and devoted a decent chunk of my life to studying his life and doing what I could to make a documentary film about him, there's something um, that I'm, I'm deeply wounded by just in terms of having 
his his basic human presence gone. I've been doing quite a bit of press and um, trying to do what I can to help people consider that in the morning of his death and celebration of his life to take inspiration from him as a guiding light for what it takes and what it means to really live a moral and principled righteous and a loving life. You know, I think that those are four of the many qualities that he represented and that not to just regard him, not to only miss him as much as I do and only grieve him or only celebrate him, but act upon his legacy in a way that moves you and hopefully your place in the world to a a better place. Because I truly believe that we're already better collectively because of Muhammad Ali, but that's no reason to stop. Now, I got to ask you, you, you said that you had met him twice in your life. Can you speak about both of those times, what it entailed? It was two different periods. You know, there was a couple of times within each period. The first time, first period was when my first job in documentary film on, a, on a, a project I've come to call the Titanic because it was this obscenely well-funded $6 million of Japanese publishing house money to these two British guys who'd not made a documentary film before. They'd only made heavy metal music videos since 1990. I was in my mid-20s, just out of grad school. These guys had a beautiful loft in Soho with all the whatever amenities and all of Ali's fight footage, which, you know, long before ESPN classic, that stuff was hard to see because the rights were all locked up, but they had everything. So I got to watch all of his fights, many of which I had never seen before. And also discover the Muhammad Ali beyond the ring that became the focus of my film. And through that period, Ali had signed on. I'm sure he got paid. I hope he got paid well and would come around the office, you know, now and again, just to kind of see what was going on and say hello. And pretty much every time he came, there was a variation on the theme of these two Brits trying to sequester Ali in their corner office. And Ali rope a dope in his way out and coming down to the research pit where there was a lot more people and hanging out doing magic tricks. And it was so amazing that that's where he wanted to be. The Parkinson's was noticeable, but he could still speak and laugh and smile and riff and joke. And that's what, you know, it was just, I'll never forget. It just taught me a lot about humility. He wasn't showing off. He wasn't full of himself. He wanted to be with us. That was very, very moving. I just remember one time the British guys were taking him somewhere. They were always taking him somewhere. And they asked me to bring his bags down to the van. They took his bags down, loaded him on the elevator, loaded him on the van, went to go back up the elevator, and I'm standing there by myself. And I'm sure Ali knew what he was doing. He knew what I had done, and I was going to be standing in front of the elevator door to come up. Because when the door opened, he was standing right in the front of the elevator. And as the door opens, he started to fall forward, you know, in a pretend way toward me, and then stopped and laughed and shook my hand and got in the van and he just was doing that kind of stuff all the time. So that was one period. And then flash forward to when I started making my own film, the trials of Muhammad Ali. My first move was to meet with Lonnie and Muhammad uh, at their farm in Berrien Springs, Michigan, 
to essentially get their blessing to, you know, let them know who I was. Was it difficult to hook up that meeting? It's totally. It was very difficult, especially because right in the middle of setting it up, TKX came in and made that deal where they paid Ali $50 million for 80% of the rights to his image, likeness, and name, and this lead wall came down. You know, I was in great contact before CKX. And just to be clear, that, that, that CTX, those are brand managers. They're the people who took over Elvis and Graceland and turned it. And into American a... Idol and Ali, yeah. yeah and and yeah. I think subsequently they've sold the Ali holding, as far as I know. I've sort of lost track of what happened to it. Um, but yeah, that's who they are. Hmm, I and, wonder who um, they sold it to. Prior to that, the Ali business was like a little family business. There was just a few people on this farm. And Lonnie, I think very wisely to her credit, liquidated essentially the one remaining asset, which was exactly that, the intellectual ether of Ali for that tremendous amount of money, and then maintained a seat at the table. You know, 80% is what she sold, so she and Ali still had to approve everything that they tried to do. So then I had to circle back and start going through CKX, and that was just infinitely complicated. But all the while, I had an ace in the hole, which is my great friend, Leon Gast, who I met on the Titanic on that $6 billion project, which I forgot to mention, went down after a year. I called the Titanic because mm-hmm. those Brits spent $6 million bucks in a year and didn't finish the film. Eventually, the Japanese publishing company, years later, got it finished. But through that project, I met Leon because he was one of the segment editors. And he, when the Titanic went down, Leon pulled his chunk out and that became When We Were Kings. That's how I met Leon. Leon and the Ali's are very close. They love that film. And um, he helped me get that meeting, even with CKX. And that's why when I went there and sat with Muhammad and Lonnie and a CKX attorney and pitched what I wanted to do, and Lonnie and Muhammad got it right away. They understood that despite everything out there that had already been done about Muhammad, nobody had zeroed in and done a documentary film specifically on the exile years. And Lonnie looked me straight in the eye in front of the CKX attorney and said, but it has to be done independently. I don't want my husband's legacy whitewashed. And that was so mm. meaningful to me because to me personally, she was giving wow. me the blessing, but also saying it in front of the brand managers, letting them know, that's what she wanted this film to be. Wow. And also she is, I mean, and obviously Lonnie is a very, very smart person, but very saying, smart. but saying explicitly, I get who these guys are and I get yep. what they do. So it, yep. it's a rebuke to their process. And clearly, obviously she brought them in. So she understands it was a necessary evil to make the family financially secure, but she knows what that's about, and it's not yeah. pretty. So, you know, then I started embarking on making the film, and I wasn't done dealing with CKX. They were still really monitoring. They wanted to know what I was doing. And they said, put together a budget, and, uh, you know, we'll fund the film. And I was very suspect about that, but okay. So I figured, well, they paid you know, at least $50 million. I'm going to put together, a you know, glory of the fattest budget I can think of, and I gave them a million-dollar budget, which is huge for a documentary film, at least anything I've worked on, other than the $6 million one. I knew not to make it that big, because I saw what happened when you got that much money. So a million bucks, and they didn't bat an eye, and they're like, okay, 
let's do it. We were going back and forth, and I knew the elephant in the room that had not come up was Final Cut. And we were getting very close, you know, stuff was getting written up. And I finally said, so what's up with Final Cut? And they said, well, we figure if we're going to pay $6 million to make the film, that we get Final Cut. And I said, well, look, I'll give you the copyright. You can own the film, but I get Final Cut. And, and I said, look, it's not that I'm too proud to do a work for hire. If you got some kind of Elvis project you want me to do for you, I'll do it. However you want me to do it. But not this. This mm. is too near and dear. And when we fell out over that, amicably, fortunately, but I was a you know, proud fool or whatever. I turned down the million dollars so that I could. And it, it, actually, we took it one step further. I was like, what are you guys worried about? And that's when it got them remembering all this stuff. That's when it got to the point where they said, well, we don't want any white devil stuff in there. I'm like, oh, man, this is not going to work. No, I just said, look. None of that white devil um, stuff in there. Right. (laughs) All right, come on, you guys. I'm trying to tell the story. There's no way to make this film without including that. You were quoted as saying on one occasion, all whites are devils. But that's not true, is it? Elijah Muhammad teaches us that God told him that all whites are devils. Well, God was wrong on that occasion, wasn't well, it? You I believe don't. every word of it. Yeah, but you don't actually believe that I all believe whites every are devils. Word. Yes, sir. I believe everything he preached. <laughs> I mean, I just... I, you said all, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying I to... really believe that all white people are devils. I'm not going to be no phony. I done gave up $10 million in fighting. I done, I'll go to jail for five years. And uh, you think I'm going to get on this TV show and deny what I believe? No. I believe every bit of it. My, from my point of view, what Elijah Muhammad is doing to you is diseasing your mind. You have the nerve to be on a TV show like I this think and he, look I, at me like I'm wrong for saying Elijah Muhammad is poisoning you by telling you that we're your enemies. Yeah. And I feel it and see it every day. And every black man watching this show know you are enemies. And you have the nerve to stand up here and say Elijah Muhammad is poisoning my mind. He cannot teach us that you are enemy. You taught us. I went on on my own and uh, hooked up with Cartemplin in Chicago and we got it done. And um, yeah, so it's out in the world now. Wow. And given that the film is, an, it's my favorite of the Ali docs, and it is an explicit stance against whitewashing. It's an explicit stance against turning our heroes into something easily consumable. And given that that was your mission, I would love your thoughts about the, the funeral service that's being planned for Muhammad. You probably heard that mm-hmm. Bill Clinton is speaking at it. You probably heard that um, Orrin Hatch is one of the people leading the processional as a Mormon representative. Mm-hmm. What are the whitewashing fears of a funeral send-off like this? Well, I'm rooting for the processional. That's really why I want to go. Huh. You know, be- Me too. because um, because I I believe, you know, Louisville and then some is going to just be out on the streets en masse. And that's really where the send-off is happening as far as I'm concerned. And as I understand it, that really was something... Ali demanded that the funeral be open to the public. And I think that, you know, then in a certain way, when you're Muhammad Ali, maybe easier said than done, right? Well, we can't fit everybody who would want to come anywhere. It's a microcosm of how everybody has wanted some kind of piece of Ali yes. in very different ways forever. And, and a piece, when I say a piece, it could be to break his jaw. It could be to lock him up. It could be to claim him as our own. Like that's, you know, and, 
former President Bush says that when he gives them the Medal of Freedom, which makes my stomach turn to this day. And people's interpretation of Ali lighting the torch at the Olympics, you know, was that I've heard some of the haters say, well, okay, that's Ali's way of apologizing, or that's our way of forgiving him. I think if anything, that was his way of forgiving us, (laughs) you know, for the fact that he stood for our country when our country let him down. Wow. Trials of Muhammad Ali. What scene in trials are you most proud of? You know, I had a list, kind of magic wand list of about 10 or so people that I wanted in the film. And I got every one of them except for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So then I tried to get Bill Russell. I wanted one of the guys that was at that famous meeting where athletes were trying to convince Ali to go to Vietnam and came out convinced he was sincere and backed him instead. So I tried to get Bill Russell and that led me to John Carlos, man. Muhammad Ali's making statements about what was happening in his life and his world and this society in which we live and you're going to crucify him and take his means to support his family away? Oh, and it was wrong. Simple as that. The United States leads the Olympics in medal awards and is just about supreme in the sprint races thanks to men like Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They came in first and third. Anytime they have an Olympic Games, anytime they do a national anthem at a football game, that's politics right there. We felt that as young individual athletes that we could make a significant difference in society. I said, look, Tommy, I want to make a statement. Let's put a black glove on and say, hey, although we're proud to be Americans, we're proud to be black Americans. I had a black shirt on to cover up my USA because I was ashamed of America, the way America has been all these years. We have a great history in this country, but at the same time, we have a history that we should be ashamed of. The number one statement in my mind was to have Muhammad Ali vindicated from all the nonsense, the negativities that they try and put around him and give him the right to be the champion that he deserved. And that happened because of your book, which I came across, that uh, I read twice in one night. And I did. I read the whole thing, and then I read it again. I love that book. Thank you. And then... I went online. This is just one of those magic serendipitous moments where I was like, well, I wonder if he's touring. I swear to God, I go online and he's coming to Wheaton College like in four days. And bam, 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 we got a hold of Wheaton and John agreed right away. And he added such a depth and soul to the film. Oh, it's great. He's electric. It might be the most proud thing is that and it's, you know, he's the one guy that represents a person that, frankly, wasn't on my initial list. But when I got to him, he was much, I think, better than Jabbar or Bill Russell would have been. I think everybody's looking for truth. Everybody's trying to find themselves. People sit back now in their old age to reflect on the crossroads of their life. Did I make the right choice? Muhammad Ali stood fast. He never denied what he stood for. Hey, Bill, I know this is a difficult time. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, I really How are you feeling, man? Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It's It's been the sort of thing where it's been a, a non-sleeping whirlwind. 
And then right. every time I have a chance to just actually sit and think, I just get really sad. Yeah. That's why this kind of thing helps, actually. And I appreciate you asking me to do this because it's been, you know, um, you're an exception. But generally speaking, I don't really like to do interviews because I, I don't trust them. But I feel somewhat of an obligation, but also an honor to be able to speak at this time. And it is helping yeah. me, you know. No, it's true. It's true because it, it it's a way to not feel so isolated because we're part of Muhammad Ali's family, but we're also not. Right. So, you know, the, the only way to, I think, get through death is through collective mourning. And since we don't have yes, access right. to the actual circle of the family, arms around them, crying together, sharing stories, we can only do it with each other. Man, you just convinced me I'm going to Louisville. I'll see you there. Yeah, I hope I did. I want to see you there. I'm always going to be one black one who got big on your white televisions, on your white newspapers, on your satellites, and 100% stay with and represent my people. That was my purpose, and that's why I'm happy. I'm here, and I'm showing the world that you can be here and still free and stay yourself and get respect from the world. Bill Siegel, and I cannot recommend to people enough to seek out the trials of Muhammad Ali, to watch the trials of Muhammad Ali, and to understand what makes this loss of Bill Siegel so much of a societal loss, not merely a loss to his friends and loved ones. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe and now back to the edge of sports podcast the just stand up award this week goes to members of the north carolina athletic community who signed on to a letter in protest of an idea put forward by the university of north carolina's board of governors to take a confederate monument on campus which had been toppled known as silent sam which is a tribute monument to people who went to UNC and fought for the Confederacy and house it in a $3 million plus building uh, on campus. Now the Board of Governors, I should say, has um, backtracked and they're going back to the drawing board as far as what to do with the Silent Sam Monument. And one of the reasons why I think they backtracked is this powerful letter that was signed by members of the UNC community, like Vince Carter, Harrison Barnes, and Jerry Stackhouse. Let me read this letter because I, I want to read it in full because it's so powerful. They write, we write to express our deep concerns regarding the recent proposal to erect a building on South Campus to house the Confederate monument, aka Silent Sam. First, to the UNC current athletes, as former Carolina athletes, we recognize the very difficult position current scholarship athletes face in joining a public protest against this representation of white supremacy on our campus. 
For those of you who decide to speak up and stand with other students, staff, and faculty who are against this multi-million dollar investment for the housing of the statue, we applaud your courage and conviction. We support your right to express your democratic right of freedom of speech. You should not be fearful of repercussion. We would have liked to have heard the opinion of the athletic department leadership and coaches regarding this disposition of Silent Sam, especially in light of the high number of black athletes who have participated on the football, basketball, and track and field teams over the history of Carolina athletics. Their silence is very glaring, and it tells us a story. We agree with the 500-plus member Black Student Movement Statement that black athletes and faculty are often used by the university as accessories. We were part of that sacrifice and branding. We helped to tell the story that Carolina is the university of the people. We love UNC, but now also feel a disconnect from an institution that was unwilling to listen to students and faculty who asked for Silent Sam to be permanently removed from campus. The recommendation is embarrassing to us who proudly promote UNC. This slap in the face is not new to African Americans, though. We have learned and observed many times in U.S. history whereby institutions turn their backs on marginalized people. Thus, we know this struggle will continue. We make a pledge to stay informed and connected with our voice and resources to activists who will work to bring justice and light to matters at UNC. This is crisis time at Carolina, and we feel that a clear shot has been fired. It hurts us like it hurts many of you living and working in Chapel Hill. Do know that we hear and support you in your efforts to bring attention to this wrongful decision. Hark the drum. Harrison Barnes, Vince Carter, Jerry Stackhouse, Marvin Williams, Danny Green, Tony Bradley, Reggie Bullock, Ed Davis, Wayne Ellington, Raymond Felton, John Henson, Isaiah Hicks, Justin Jackson, Theo Pinson, Adamola Okolaja, J.R. Reed, David Noel, Damian Grant, Kennedy Meeks, Mokhtar Andai, Vasil Evmitov, George Lynch, Ed Geth, Quentin Thomas, Leslie McDonald, Justin Watts, Brendan Haywood, Terrence Newby, Joel James, Bryce Johnson, Dion Thompson, Ryan Ellerby, Chelsea Thompson, Haley McCorkle, Travis Bond, William Sweet, J.K. Britt, Keith Beasley Jr., and more as communications go forth across the network. Very cool. That's your Just Stand Up Award. I do have to point out, though, that when I'm looking at these names, one of the things that's kind of jarring is the absence of white athletes, particularly high-profile white basketball players from this. I mean, I don't know if Tyler Hansborough or Eric Montross, who now works at UNC, I don't know if they were approached about signing this, but we're talking about uh, like Mitch Kupchak, uh, Billy Cunningham, Tyler Zeller, Lenny Rosenbluth. There, there is a tradition here. Um, of great white athletes at UNC, and it, it's important that their voices be heard. I mean, provided, of course, that they agree that the university should not be in the business of housing monuments to slavery and white supremacy. So that's just an observation about this, but the letter itself is amazing. The, the words about branding are really powerful, and it's something to keep in mind. Also, be remiss just because to make it unspoken is... Almost too obvious, the absence of the name Michael Jordan on this list. Obviously the most famous UNC alum of all alums. Just had to mention that. Uh, in this case, I guess the folks who signed on did not want to be like Mike. Now the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down! This one goes to a Major League Baseball executive who said that Bruce Maxwell, who's a free agent catcher who played for the Oakland A's, is probably not going to get signed because, quote, owners aren't going to want to deal with that whole anthem issue, end quote. 
sit your ass down, Major League Baseball executive. I mean, the idea that they are going to collude against Bruce Maxwell for taking a stand against white supremacy, racism, and police violence is absolutely disgusting. And it's a reminder that no sport punishes dissidents quite like baseball, whether you're talking about Kurt Flood, who ushered in free agency, whether you're talking about the great Bill Lee, the spaceman who in the 1980s found himself without a job after he spoke about marijuana being part of his training regimen, or Barry Bonds, the legend, the GOAT in my opinion, whose last year in Major League Baseball had him hitting, I believe, 28 home runs and leading the majors in on-base percentage, and yet it didn't matter. Uh, because he was Barry Bonds and they were just waiting to get rid of him. Absolutely abhorrent, absolutely ridiculous, absolutely beneath contempt. And Bruce Maxwell, (laughs) solidarity to you, you always have a place, even if it's not in Major League Baseball, you always have a place here on the Edge of Sports podcast. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People gotta know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, that's all we have for this week on the show. Uh, For everybody out there listening, please have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Happy Holidays to you and yours. Uh, If you want to give the show a Christmas present, why don't you... Uh, give us a nice little rating over at iTunes or Stitcher or your podcast app of choice or write up a little note or something saying you like the show. That we will take as a terrific thing. And my birthday is December 28th, so consider it a birthday present uh, in and of itself. As well, for everybody listening, thank you. And rest in peace, rest in power to Chicago Bill Siegel. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.